something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Hello, everybody. Some major breaking news happened last night. Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, has been indicted on nine separate charges on failure to pay over $1 million in taxes in the state of California, but delivered by a federal grand jury. Now, you'll have to recall that these this indictment, these charges were brought forward after a plea deal between Hunter Biden and the government collapsed specifically because IRS whistleblowers came forward to allege that there was political pressure involved in the IRS investigation into Hunter Biden, and they were not allowed to explore his foreign business dealings and the possible connections to the current president of the United States. After the the basically falling apart of the plea deal in that case, in which the judge alleged that it was too sweetheart, the government has now decided to go through with its prosecution effectively after having its hand force. And the details in some of this, this is exactly why Hunter wanted to plea, was to make sure that none of this came out because it is just stunning in terms of its corruption, in terms of his own personal conduct. And look, we will uh, leave the personal conduct, I think, for a little bit later in this video. We're going to start with what we really need to know about his foreign business dealings. So let's go and put the indictment up there on the screen. And I'm going to go ahead and read directly from this quote. The defendant engaged in a four-year scheme to not pay at least $1.4 million in self-assessed federal taxes that he owed for the tax years 2016 through 2019. From in or about January of 2017 through in or about October 15, 2020, and to evade the assessment of taxes for the tax year 2018, he filed false returns in or about February of 2020. So there are three felonies that have been charged, six misdemeanors from failure to 
pay taxes and failure to file taxes. The indictment also lays out something very important around these business dealings. Hunter Biden hauled in more than $7 million in total gross income from foreign business dealings involving Ukrainian, Romanian, and Chinese entities. Quote, at times relevant to this indictment, the defendant served on the board of Ukrainian industrial conglomerate and a Chinese private equity fund. He negotiated and executed contracts and agreements for business and legal services that paid millions of dollars of compensation to him and or his domestic corporations. Now, the single most important piece of the indictment, I believe, is this Let's go and put it up there on the screen. What you can see here very clearly is that Hunter Biden's salary from Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company of which he was put on the board of while President Obama was president, cut his salary in half just two months after Donald Trump took office. Let me read this quote. In or around April of 2014, the defendant joined the board of the director of Burisma Holdings uh, Limited Company, a Ukrainian industrial conglomerate. Burisma agreed to pay the defendant an annual salary of approximately $1 million to be paid in monthly disbursements. In March of 2017, Burisma reduced his compensation to approximately $500,000 a year, and he continued to serve on the board of directors until or around April of 2019. As a result, he received a total of a million dollars in 2016, which then dropped to $600,000 in 2017 and continued to drop between 2018 and 2019. So very clearly, the vast majority of his income from the Ukrainian energy company came while Joe Biden was vice president of the United States and who was in charge of the Ukraine portfolio. Now, furthermore, and this gets to Hunter's own personal conduct, the uh, Department of Justice was not sparing whatsoever in detailing the vast sums of of money that Hunter spent on illicit activities. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read some of this. And, uh, you know, if you've got kids in the room or anything like that, I would recommend that you take them out. So these are the descriptions of the things that Hunter Biden, according to the IRS and the Department of Justice, did instead of paying his taxes. He withdrew a grand total of $1.6 million in cash, $1.6 million between 2016 and 2019. And for payments to various women, um, he spent $683,000 in those in that same period for clothing and accessories four hundred thousand dollars for uh what is described as quote adult entertainment it's a hundred and eighty eight thousand dollars uh now i have a question too which is why is adult entertainment not lumped together with various women and let's also be very clear here that the one the payments to quote various women were not necessarily girlfriends or any of that they're described in the indictment as escorts and sex workers all basically across the world including and in europe there also was a very important point that the IRS and the Department of Justice sought to clarify that they're not prosecuting Hunter for being a degenerate drug addict. They are also highlighting, quote, even after he became sober, they say well after he regained his sobriety and when he finally did file his outstanding taxes, quote, the defendant did not direct any payments towards his tax liabilities for each of those years. 
At the same time, the defendant spent large sums to maintain his lifestyle from January through October 15th of 2020. He spent, as I uh, already showed you, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it appears, almost close to a million if you combine the two, three quarters of a million dollars on, quote, various women and adult entertainment. So the reason why, again, all of this is important is it opens up a lot of different exploration for corruption. Who do you know that withdraws $1.6 million in cash? $1.6 million. Remember this, folks. If you withdraw more than $10,000, that is supposed to trigger an automatic notification to the FBI, to the Treasury Department, and the bank is supposed to report you. This is something that Jeffrey Epstein um, also did in order to cover a lot of the tracks about some of the things he were doing. Now, with Hunter, uh, it appears the DOJ had enough visibility in his finances. They can even itemize the separate amounts that he spent on hookers and uh, on hookers and on quote adult entertainment, as well as his lavish lifestyle, including clothing, accessories, vehicles, all these other things. So, what did the remainder of the one point six million dollars in cash do? Who do you know again who conducts business that way? Cash under the table is the way that all illicit uh, transactions are done. Now, presumably, some of that, maybe even a large portion of that, was used to buy drugs, but you also don't know um, who he gave it to. So that's one separate avenue. The second thing on Burisma, and this is obviously verifiable from the DOJ tax indictment, it's very clear that they stopped paying him as much whenever he was no longer as useful to them. And I mean, that in and of itself is outrageous because it demonstrates why he was put on the board in the first place and the extent to now which many of his business partners have testified to allegedly Joe Biden, at least knowing something or something involved with these. Now the big question for the investigation did he receive any cash under the table? We have not even really gone into James Biden, the president of Joe Biden, who has long traded off of his name. And I recommend uh, Ben Schreckinger's book uh, called The Bidens uh, that specifically goes into all of the transactions over the decades of President Joe Biden's career uh, that he and Hunter have taken advantage of the Biden last name to the tune of tens of millions. And look, I'll just finally and take a step back and just uh, I want everybody to think about this. If you uh, were lucky enough to make $7 million, to accrue $1.4 million in taxable income, which is like not, which is a crazy sum when we start, when we all lean back and we think about it, and you fail to pay your taxes four years in a row, would you have made it all the way to 2023 without being thrown in jail by the IRS and the DOJ? Getting your sweetheart deal that the judge has to come in and say, no, 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 this is too sweetheart and forcing the government to prosecute you. The special treatment that this man got from his drug addiction to the ability to trade off of his father's last name because of his drug addiction to avoid jail time, to avoid gun charges, to avoid tax prosecution and all of that until it becomes a central priority for the opposing party when your father is president. It's just truly disgusting and it shows you what these people get away with. How many more Hunter Bidens are walking around out there? Um, I guess all people who have made, uh, or at least a lot of the people who have made seven, $10 million from foreign governments who are paying them directly for influence. So uh, that's the summary of the charges as best as I can make them. I encourage everybody to go and read these uh, raw documents for themselves. As you said, I, I barely even scratched the surface. Some of the other stuff in there is equally jaw-dropping. And uh, we'll see you all later. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done 
has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello, everybody. So I brought a monologue to all of you yesterday about these Ivy League presidents. At this point, I'm sure that you have seen the clip somewhere about the three of them unable to immediately say that calling for the genocide of Jews would constitute bullying and harassment under their student code of conducts. Obviously, that they've been called out for their hypocrisy on the issue because we all know that if they had been asked about the calling for the genocide of black or trans people or both, uh, that they would have immediately said, oh, these horrible words, and they would have issued the same fraught language that they did during BLM. Now, this has opened up a lot of debate around whether, uh, especially within the Jewish community, and I think what most of them have fallen on, Bill Ackman, all the other, uh, many who build careers on being free speech absolutists, is they're like, no, 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 no. The thing is, is that we're upset that we as American Jews are not considered marginalized within DEI. Where our objection, though, is not to the diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, racial preference regime itself, they just want to also be included as special. And I vehemently object to that, of course, but 
uh, they have adopted the same tactics, it seems at this point, of BLM, which is just full-blown cancellation and to try and get these people to issue struggle session type of uh, statements, which is largely what's occurring now, and now including calling for the immediate expulsion of all of these presidents. And uh, they have been successful. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. So the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the Penn Wharton Business School, probably one of the most important business schools in the entire country has now asked the president, Liz McGill, to resign. Let's go ahead and put the letter, please, up there on the screen. And I'm going to read, you can blah, 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 you can go read through it. But in the call for resignation, they say this, quote, in light of your testimony yesterday before Congress, we demand the university clarify its position regarding any call for harm to any group of people immediately, change any policies that allow such conduct with immediate effect, and discipline all offenders expeditiously. Call for punishment of any person that calls for harm of any group of people. Okay, so that might sound good, but let's think about it for a second. Uh so if you're calling for the genocide of Jews, okay, that's what they want. They want to uh, make sure that that would make sure that you're kicked out. But what if you're pro-Israel and you're calling for retaliation on uh, Hamas? Hamas is a group of people. So now what? Wouldn't that be harm on a group of people? Would that result in your expulsion? Or we could say, obviously both should be allowed. And if it then goes into the realm of harassing, bullying an individual student, and crosses the line into violence or somewhere within that, then yeah, that person would be expelled because it would translate into individual and it would translate into pervasive and or it would be violence. But the speech itself should be protected. Now, obviously, that's what I think it should be. That's what a lot of people used to think until they switched on a dime after October 7th. Again, I think their core objection is that they previously considered themselves marginalized and or do so now and are very upset that the DEI people don't also consider themselves as marginalized and that's what they want to rectify. They basically want to be the new BLM even if they disagree with BLM. And if you want to see this on uh, – if you really want to see this, put this up there on the screen. The new president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, a BLMer herself, uh, has now issued a new clarification to the Harvard Crimson. And the way that she talks is exactly the way that all these university presidents and CEOs talked in uh, June of 2020. Let's, let's listen to some of her comments, okay? She says – Quote, I'm sorry, words matter. When words amplify distress and pain, I don't know how you could feel anything but regret. She says, I got caught up in what had become at that point an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures. What I should have had was the presence of mind to do in that moment was return to guiding my guiding truth, which is that calls for violence against our Jewish community, threats to our Jewish students have no place at Harvard, will never go unchallenged. Substantively, I failed to convey what is my truth? When the committee invited me to the hearing, I didn't hesitate to agree. It was an opportunity to convey the depth of my personal commitment and institutional commitment to combating anti-Semitism. And she says she has now heard wrenching testimony about how much pain students are in and to contemplate something I amplified that pain that's really difficult. It makes me sad. Okay, uh, so once again, we basically have the same type of BLM nonsense that we all heard from the commanding heights of American culture for the last couple of years. So 
let's actually just think about that. Is this a good thing? Is this a net good result that, you know, if you, if you are an American Jew and uh, you're somebody who's cheering this on, I would really urge you to think about the precedent that's being set here about whether it's a good thing to just be able to brute force your way into compelling people to make statements that, you know, are obviously half-hearted and fake and to just now slot yourself in to a group that's able to compel these types of statements, get people fired, get people canceled, get people pearl clutching. Uh, I don't think this is a good thing. I, and, and I hate all these university presidents, but for very different reasons, because they themselves are the product of the racial preferences regime, of the HR bureaucracy, of the speech police. And what I'm watching instead are the people who created such a regime just incorporate a new group into it. They're not changing their practices. They're not changing their curriculum. They're not changing fundamentally their ideology about actually getting to a point where we could have free speech on campus, conservative views, liberal views, Palestinian views, Israeli views. I think everything should be allowed, everything. And for those people who say about you know, safety on campus, the language of safetyism is the road to hell. That's how the COVID regime happened, masks, all of that. You're doing it not for yourself, but for somebody else. That's how safe spaces on campus, all of it came back to the idea that your emotional fortitude or is so low that you need to be removed entirely from a place where you're not around people who don't agree with you. And in my monologue that I did, I actually played some videos of some of these Jewish students who the House of Representatives came forward and they were saying things like, you got to walk to class and look at posters where people have scribbled things on them that I find offensive. Does that really make you feel unsafe or does it make you feel upset? Feeling upset and unsafe are very different things. Safety is a physical condition. Now I understand there's a big conversation about mental health and all that, and of course, and I feel bad for these students, but the precedent has to be such that in a society, especially in an American society, we get to disagree with one another. And actually, the reason we have our First Amendment, the reason that we really, free speech is something that we've always tried to defend in this country, is that other countries don't have free speech. Israel does not have free speech. Gaza, Hamas, West Bank, they don't have free speech. We don't want to import these third world attitudes into our country and to enforce these types of regimes. That's actually why the DEI regime itself, it's illegitimate, it's un-American. And to have the robust debate, to have the ability to make sure that people aren't getting fired for the wrong reasons, even if you may not like them, and I don't, but I want them to be fired for the right reasons. I want people who are pushing this to say, okay, let's not donate to the university anymore if they're gonna have DEI. But unfortunately, that's not what's happening. Instead, we're living in a more censorious in America today in elite higher institutions than we did before October 7th. And I think that's a net negative. So anyway, it's something that I felt like I wanted to speak out on and obviously give you guys the update. Uh, thanks to all to the premium members who make all of this possible. And we will see you all this weekend if something crazy happens and otherwise on Monday. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is Sheep Hibbets. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.